Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Friday, September 1st, we're going to try to liven up your Labor Day weekend drives with a little breakdown of some accounting terms. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com tech specialist and CFA charter holder, Evan New. Evan, what's going on? You got anything fun lined up for the holiday weekend? Not really. Uh, wife's out of town for work, so it's just me and the kids. Wild weekend with the kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're but, still going to uh, have a better weekend than me, though. I'll be moving this weekend. Well, that's not hard because anything's better than moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're actually taping today's episode Thursday morning because I am moving on Friday. Um, Austin Morgan, our man behind the glass, is a new homeowner and I think recently oh. just went through a move. I did. You got any moving tips for me? Uh, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Hire people to do it for you. <laughs> it's, uh, well, luckily, luckily, my brother is a large human. He's 6'4". You are also big, a large human. I'm also a big dude, but my brother make, like, makes me feel kind of small sometimes. And him and my cousin, I was like, hey, I'll give you guys 100 bucks if you get all of these boxes and bring them over there. And they did. And then I just had to unpack everything, which sucked. Man, I wish I could do that. Uh, I helped friends move this past weekend, and there were like 10 of us. It was amazing. In and out. Took no time. But moving on a weekday means that you don't have that option. That's true. I was going to say, if, you got, if you're helping friends move, then you got help too. Yeah. But then if you move... I've helped way too many people move think, to not have any help now. I th- yeah. I mean, I think you move what you can move, what you need to move, and then Saturday you're like, hey, what's up? Call on the cavalry. I got a case of beer. Let's go. <laughs> so, if your listeners, if your Labor Day traffic seems bad, just remember that I will be pouring with sweat and moving boxes on Friday and Saturday. Um, to bring it back around to what we're going to be talking about today, Evan, I think every now and then on the show, uh, we have a tendency to throw around some industry terms, and perhaps we don't do the best job defining them. You know, we we get so excited about the topic we're talking about that sometimes we don't make it super accessible to folks that are either new to investing or perhaps just starting out uh, learning the tech space. So I figured today we're going to spend some time explaining a couple of those concepts uh, that we might glaze over a little bit week to week. Yeah, it's always good to give a little primer. (laughs) I think one term in particular that we toss around a lot is the idea of the network effect. And this is something that listeners and people that consume uh, tech news probably see a lot because one of the big tech names, Facebook uh, and then Twitter as well, you know, Snap, kind of has this associated with it very frequently. Um, And for those types of companies, when we hear network effect, we're talking about the direct network effect. And and the idea here is that an increase in usage of a good or service will lead to a direct increase in value for other users. And the gist of it, the, the kind of layman way of saying that is, the more people that are part of something, the more valuable the experience becomes for the people that are using it, right? Yeah, I mean the the classical example is always like the original the very original phone. Like you you would never buy a phone unless someone else unless you can call people with it. So <laughs> yeah, a phone's kind of useless if you can only hold it, right? <laughs> right. I mean, of course, nowadays we take that off for for granted since everyone has a phone in their pocket. But you know, the classic you know Alexander Graham Bell from the you know, fifty years ago phone when phones were a whole new thing. Yeah, I mean, to get people to adopt that technology, it only makes sense if more people have it. And looking at the social media companies, uh, the example holds. So, you know, the platforms become dramatically more valuable when you can use them to connect with people like your high school friends, cousins, aunts, uncles, etc. You know, if no one is on Facebook, you really don't have much of an incentive to use Facebook. And so, as people join it, it kind of creates this virtuous cycle of other people joining. It's kind of the snowball effect. Um, so, that's the direct network uh, effect side. There's also the lesser known indirect network effect. 
And uh, the idea here is that increased usage of a product creates the production of increasingly valuable complementary goods, which then benefits the value of the original product. And, and that's kind of a complicated explanation of this term, and it might be easier to illustrate it with looking at Apple's consumer electronic devices, uh, like the you know iPhones, iPads, and then its services segment, uh, where things like the App Store are nested. So you know you think about the consumer hardware side, and the larger that the installed base is of people with iPhones, iPads, things like that, the larger the app offerings are going to be, because the iOS developer community will recognize the size of the opportunity. The larger that library becomes, that increases the use cases and the functionality of the phone itself, which makes it more valuable to consumers that actually own the device. Exactly, and importantly, I think of that example is that Apple isn't directly doing a whole lot there, and they're just connecting developers to consumers, and you know, that indirect network effect is really robust and it's really powerful. And because it's indirect, Apple doesn't really have to do too much on its own, other than kind of you know manage the op- operate the app store and you know kind of facilitate those uh, those relationships and what we see with both examples here of the direct and indirect network effect is that once you get the ball rolling with these types of businesses it can become a super powerful thing that just snowballs and and really creates business pretty effortlessly for these companies winds up becoming a major catalyst for them i think one thing that's interesting when it comes to twitter though uh, since you know certainly all social media companies are very heavily reliant on network effects to really build their businesses. But I think that one thing that's interesting with Twitter is that they don't have they don't have that they don't enjoy that as much because it's such a public service. Like and and also because not I think Twitter is more about following people you don't know, you know, like like high profile people or you know, as opposed to your personal friends. And you know, like you don't really need to since Twitter is all public. You don't really need to join to derive value from the service if you're just wanting to to see what some you know high profile people are saying, like politicians or celebrities or business people or whatever the case might be. So it's interesting that by making their their uh, platform so public, it actually diminishes the value of network effects because you don't have to join to actually be able to derive the value out of it. Whereas Facebook is very much more about you know making personal connections with people that you know, um, and then you know. You both have to join to actually get that experience, right? Because so many outlets are going to report on kind of the relevant and newsworthy things that happen on Twitter, anyways. And because you know tweets come in through search results, uh, whereas you know you look at Facebook or Instagram, and very often you need to be a part of the service to consume any part of it. Um, you know, kind of the same thing for LinkedIn in a lot of ways. Um, so, so they don't enjoy it quite the same way. I mean, in ramping to the you know, hundreds of millions of users that they have now, it certainly helped, but it did at a certain point kind of hinder their long-term growth. Right, right. Um, Definitely. I've done quite a bit of talking so far. So for our next term, I'm going to flip things over to you, Evan. Why don't we talk a little bit about operating leverage? This is something that's come up quite a bit in some of our recent shows. For sure, and and it's also you know very widely applicable. You know, network effects is you know, kind of limited to certain types of companies, but operating leverage is very universal. So it's, I think it is a very important concept um, and you know, definitely deserves a little bit more of a deep dive. Uh, so if you look at a, a company's cost structure, if you if we go back to, you know, Econ 101 in college, if you remember, there's two types of costs that companies face. There's uh, it's primarily fixed costs and variable costs. And, you know, the combination, how those two types of costs combine 
translates into your total costs and then you know how those costs spread out over your production gives you total average costs and you know these variables change and you know if you look at you know these these factors are very important to how a company wants to scale because if you have a you know i mean so if, if we go back to kind of a textbook example it's like a t-shirt factory like the factory itself would be the fixed cost but the cotton or and all the inputs that you're using to make the t-shirts would be your variable costs so as you ramp production your fixed costs don't really change so you know you already built that factory and then it's there and that's paid for but then on a you know your variable cost is the inputs and the more shirts that you make then the more cotton you're going to need so you know that proportion of how much of your cost structure is fixed versus variable goes goes a long way into uh, can you because operating leverage really trend what, what it boils that down down to is that you're able to grow margins and gross margins expand when revenue rises so, so you, you become more profitable as you grow bigger which you know companies love because <laughs> you know that's a very strong you know uh, you can put up really strong results if you're really growing and becoming more profitable while you do so and certainly there's always a lot of seasonality to, to operating leverage but if you have a, a really high proportion of fixed costs and you know a relatively smaller proportion of variable costs then when you're ramping up production then your total costs once they're spread out over a greater base of, of units then your costs actually don't grow as quickly as your revenue and that's how you get this this really nice margin expansion is because you're, you're able to spread out the, the fixed costs over a larger base of, of units um, so that, that's really what it boils down to and I think one of the most high-profile examples of this is, um, and that we've talked about on the show at least, is the difference with how Facebook has approached their business and their data centers, and how Snap has decided to do it. Um, and and this is something you've written about plenty for Fool.com. You want to dive into that a little bit? Yeah, and it's a perfect example too because they're they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum in how they approach you know, their, their cost structure. And Facebook is kind of much more the traditional how most companies do it for a tech company. So in the context of Facebook and Snap, one of the biggest things for these companies is how they deliver the service with their backend infrastructure um, or other people's infrastructure <laughs> in the case of Snap. But um, so, you know, so Facebook has, you know, seven or eight gigantic data centers all over the world. Each data center is billions of dollars to build. But then once they – and that's the fixed cost part, right, is, is you're putting billions and billions of dollars into this, this gigantic facility that enables your service. Um, and that's a huge fixed cost up front, right? Um, so then they um, – then the, the variable cost is just the operating expenses associated with running those facilities. So think about electricity, utilities, um, the people that work there, you know, paying employees. Those are more of the variable costs. But the point being that once, once you have that facility in place – and then you're the one operating, you're, you own that facility. And then as usage in, of the service increase, and certainly the way they monetize usage is obviously through ads. Um, so then once they start ramping up usage of the service and then monetizing that usage with ad revenue while keeping their kind of costs relatively fixed, I mean, because again, if you look at data center, it's, it's, it's primarily a fixed cost with some variable costs in there, right? Mm. But it's very heavily concentrated toward the fixed side. I mean, the downside of having a really high fixed cost base is that if things go down and the business starts to deteriorate, now you ha you're on the hook for a really big cost and you have no way to pay for it. I mean, good, a good example there is the auto industry. Auto industry is, is huge 
you know have very high fixed cost bases because they operate these gigantic factories and they need that's why they need to be always you know constantly selling cars and they get pinched really hard when there's a, an industry downturn but you know so now if we if we flip that around to to a company like snap their strategy is the complete opposite um, which is that they completely outsource all infrastructure to larger companies that are very good at this stuff, Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services. And so they don't own any of their own infrastructure. And instead, so in a sense, they have no fixed costs related to their hosting strategy. It's all variable costs. So you, you, every time usage increases on your service, you're paying increasing fees. So your costs scale up just almost as quickly as you know your revenue scales up whereas you know for facebook your, your your total costs don't scale up as you're increasing usage so i mean that's why we've said before that it's going to be extremely hard for snap to put up any type of operating leverage because usage of the service directly translates into you know very commensurate increase in variable costs and it's true that they've been able to get some better pricing negotiations so that's helping them um, so, you know, that's why they're able to have some improvements compared to a year ago. So, you know, a year ago, hosting costs would exceed revenue, and now it's kind of getting more in line to where they can actually turn a gross margin, a gross profit. But, you know, so it's not to say that it's impossible. Uh, and again, there's other factors because they're negotiating pricing. But fundamentally, it's harder uh, compared to if you were to just do it yourself. Yeah, it, it's a lot tougher for them to wind up doing anything on the margin side. Uh, to really expand. And this might be a conversation uh, that our listeners might already be kind of familiar with. This is something we've touched on a couple times, actually specifically with some of these businesses, but I did think it was kind of worth diving deep into. Um, we have a couple more topics that we want to cover, and I swear we will use different companies in our examples. Uh, but before we get over to that back half of the show, I just want to take a moment to talk about the Motley Fool Investment Guide. This book is the succinct summary of our investing philosophy. It's a playbook for everything we do here at The Fool and a great guide for long-term investing. The third edition is a massive update on the second edition and even has a new section on options. Check it out at book.fool.com. You can pre-order your copy before it goes on sale September 5th. Again, that's book.fool.com. Evan, I think we both got a little ranty in the first half of the show. Um, <laughs> both kind of got really excited about the topics we were talking about and, and did not dialogue too well. Uh, we'll try to remedy that here in the second half. Um, one of the other kind of uh, one of the other things we wanted to discuss was the notion of capitalizing versus expensing purchases, and this is like a bust out the accounting books type discussion. You're the one with the CFA designation here. I'm going to let you start to explain, and I might ask some dumb questions here and there to help clarify. Sure, sure. So this is a pretty big one too, and, and there's been, uh, so capitalizing versus expensing. So let's say you're a business and you incur a big cost for something. Let's say you're building a factory for $100 million. Um, and, and if you're building a factory, that's a long lived asset that you'll be able to use for you know a, some period of time after that. You know, five, seven, ten years later, you can still be using this factory. So, if you're putting investing money into a capital asset like that, you would you would do what's called capitalize the purchase or capitalize the expense. So instead of saying you know that hundred million dollars, instead of Expensing, whereas expensing it goes on the income statement and, and directly comes out of revenue. It affects your reported gross profit, your or, excuse me, your reported net income, and and it really it's directly on the income statement, which is one of the most important 
financial statements that investors look at when they're looking at you know what's your net profit, your net margin, your earnings per share, et cetera. So if you were to expense the entire hundred million dollars of that factory immediately, you're taking an immediate hundred million dollar hit on your profitability. Um, whereas if you capitalize that asset, you don't put it on the income statement, but then you say, okay, now we've built this hundred million dollar factory. You put a hundred million dollar asset on your balance sheet, and then then you depreciate it slowly over time, over you know, let's just say seven years or whatever the useful life of this factory is. So you, instead of booking hundred million dollars up front, then you, you, instead you just book it as an asset and then depreciate it slowly over time. So it, in essence, it's a way to spread out the co- that cost over time, and you know, it's a really important distinction on when that is or is not appropriate. Because if you're, you know, typically if capital expenditures, it's, you know, those are all capitalized, right? If you're building uh, big investments and stuff and you know, th- those depreciate over time, whereas things like operating expenses that are kind of like re- regular expenses, that's something where you, you definitely need to be expensing it as opposed to capitalizing it. And, and this this, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a concept that to me, um, at a glance, seems like a very in-the-weeds accounting discussion. But when you start to kind of work through it, it makes a lot of sense. It, it just makes common sense that if you're going to use something over an extended period of time, why would you only recognize the cost of it uh, immediately? Why, why wouldn't you do it over several years, right? Exactly. Like the kind of um, sniff test is like if you're building something that you can use, then yeah, it makes sense to capitalize it. But if you're just incurring an expense for like, your monthly utility bill, you don't, I mean, you're just using something. You don't have something left to show for it. You're not building an asset. So, or, or another example would be like your payroll when you pay your employees. That's obviously something you expense. You're not, it's not something you can put on the balance sheet. And I mean, the most famous uh, example of this where there, there is some potential for, for accounting shenanigans and, and their Worldcom was the biggest um, case of fraud around capitalizing versus expensing from the early 2000s you know right after enron right a year after <laughs> enron goes bust worldcom does, not <laughs> not a great not a great period for the accounting industry <laughs> right so worldcom um, basically they were in, inappropriately capitalizing things as opposed to expensing things because this is the heart of their scandal is they were taking operating expenses like you know what their payments to people you know to enable some of the services some of their partners etc but basically instead of recognizing all these costs up front they were improperly capitalizing these costs which again allows you to basically spread out the costs over time and so in doing so they minimize their expenses in the current near term periods which then goes around and inflates your profits because you're not fully recognizing your actual expenses and you're you know, basically mistreating these expenses because when you should be expensing them, you're capitalizing them, putting them on your balance sheet, and then you depreciate them slowly over many, many years. So you're only really kind of seeing a tiny portion of that um, up front. So you know, they, I mean, they, they, it was something like $4 billion in fake profits that they were inflating or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact figure, but the point is that at the heart of that scandal was they were improperly – capitalizing expenses that should have been expensed in the current period. So and the, they were doing it to this insane degree. <laughs> like they're just doing it going completely wild with it. And you know, and of course, you know, that lets them put up these really strong profit numbers, which investors love, but then it turns out these numbers are all fake. <laughs> so the I think the shorthand maybe for uh, investors that are just kind of beginning to understand this topic is 
the idea of a business capitalizing is great so long as it is a an asset that has a long-term useful life and is not the operating expense type thing that you're talking about here. Right. I mean, it, there are definitely times when it's very appropriate for capital expenditures in in particular. Um, so, you know, I don't see I mean, after WorldCom, I don't see, think a lot of companies are really, you know, doing shady things with this kind of accounting anymore, but it is just something that's always good to be aware of because the potential is there for, for abuse. And, you know, kind of generally it just gives investors a, a better insight into how these costs, you know, are it, how and when and where these costs are recognized, you know, whether or not they're put on the balance sheet or on the income statement. Well, for the last thing that we're going to hit in this discussion, I think we're just going to basically flip chapters in the accounting textbook and look over at deferred revenue. Um, and I think maybe one of the better ways to illustrate this is to kind of go through the example of, you know, like, say your business, you have a customer make an order and pay you up front, but the good or service that you're responsible for is not immediately delivered. So it isn't really fair for you to then immediately recognize all of that revenue because you haven't necessarily incurred the costs of fulfilling that order yet. And so taking all the revenue at once would kind of throw your numbers out of whack. There'd be a lot of lumpiness um, in your revenue recognition. But you have the cash. They paid you, right? So it's sitting there on your balance sheet. And they need something on the other side of the balance sheet to, to balance out. So, so generally, what a business will do is record that advance payment as a deferred revenue liability on the balance sheet because the assets and then liabilities, equities, um, portions of the balance sheet need to even out, needs to be tight. Um, and it is considered a liability because the company is on the hook for fulfilling this order. Uh, again, I will I will gut check my explanation here with the CFA charter holder. How does that sound, Evan? Yeah, that that's exactly it. I mean, a good example is um, you know, like imagine a magazine subscription. If you pay $120 for a magazine subscription for a whole year, and then you get one issue a month, the company that's delivering that only gets to recognize you know $10 a month, but they've already collected $120 from you. So they would initially record $120 of deferred revenue. Every month they deliver a magazine issue to you, they recognize ten bucks, and then that deferred balance, you know, they already they already have the cash. So as you mentioned, it's already recorded on the cash side, on the on the asset side in the cash line item. But then over time, as they recognize that revenue, it, it basically switches from a liability to the equity portion because then you're you're earning it, and it's actually yours now. And much like our capitalizing expensing discussion, I mean. This sounds like scary accounting, but the reality is it's it's kind of common sense, right? If if you're delivering something monthly to someone over the course of a year, it would be silly to recognize all of the revenue in the first quarter. Um, it, it just wouldn't set you up to have kind of nice, stable, consistent financials over the course of the entire year. Right. So you know, we see this a lot with you know any company that has a subscription model that that you know, or they bill in advance for you know, let's say a year. You know, obviously, if if you have like a service like Netflix, where it's usually people are really just billing month to month, you don't really get a big balance of deferred revenue. But if you're billing for a full year in advance, and particularly for enterprise software companies, which we see this a lot of, then you're then you're definitely going to have a very large portion of deferred revenue uh, in there because they haven't delivered that service for their balance of the year. Another time you'll see this is where you know where companies will like to give you know, for example, Apple gives you software updates for free. Over the life of the device, you know. So even though they're selling you an iPhone right now, they're promising to give you up software updates for free for you know years and years and years after that. And from an accounting perspective, those software updates have value. So what they do is instead of 
you know, so the, so they kind of break out a piece of that sales price and assign it to software updates so that they're going to give you later on, and then you know, as they deliver those over time, then they recognize that revenue. So when you pay, you know, seven dollars for an iPhone, maybe I think I want to say it's twenty nine dollars or thirty something around around thirty dollars of that is is set aside as deferred revenue for things that they're going to give you later on. So you you still will even see this sometimes in. Uh, hardware products because if there's an ongoing commitment to deliver things after your purchase then there can also still be deferred revenue implications you know evan you just taught me something i didn't know that so <laughs> for, for for as much as uh we talk about apple and you know i love doing the quarterly earnings with show with you um i did not know that about their business so that's that's the bulk of where their deferred revenue comes from because i mean certainly apple doesn't have a whole lot of you know subscription services i mean they certainly do but you know that's not where that deferred revenue balance is coming from uh, if you look at Apple's balance sheet, just as one example. But. Well, Evan, uh, I see Chris Hill in the studio getting ready to tape Market Foolery, so I think we are going to have to wrap here. Um, I hope you have a great holiday weekend with the kids. Yeah, have, have fun moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. Um, before we close out, I just want to give listeners a heads up about the industry focus holiday schedule. Uh, we're going to have a bonus episode of IF posting on Saturday morning. We're calling it Industry Focus 101. And we actually got all of the hosts in the room, including new energy host Sarah Priestley, to chat about some of the big trends and stocks we're watching for the rest of the year. Uh, we had a really good time making it. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoy it. And I hope that it kind of helps you uh, handle us not putting out a new show on Monday because of the holiday. Um, listeners, of course, if you have feedback or questions, we'd also we'd love to hear about what you think with that episode in particular. Uh, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out the Fool's family of shows over at fool.com/podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Big ups to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Evan New, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and fool on. <laughs>